Amen. Well, good morning, you guys. Good morning. If I don't know you, um, my name is Dustin, and uh, I'm a preacher at another church now. So, um, but my wife and I are very thankful. We are glad to be back here. Um, we spent the first five years of the church here, and uh, we got to be a part of a lot of awesome things here. We started our family. We have a son who still lives here, and so uh, we are thankful for you guys. I, um, we, we left about a year and a half ago to go plant uh, a church in Athens, and it has been very good. So I'll give you guys an update on that. Um, uh, we've seen 15 people come to know the Lord, which is great. Um, we have... Uh, roughly about 150 people coming on Sundays and about 100 of those are in Connect Group, which is um, awesome. And so um, that's not something we can work up, right? We can't um, get things right or whatever to, that's God's grace. And so uh, we praise him and give him all the glory for that. And um, I will say though, one of the things that helps a lot is being sent from an awesome church like you guys. Um, I don't say that lightly. I was just sharing with somebody, I already know of two church plants that went to Athens and didn't make it. It's very normal in the church planting world that it doesn't go super well, but uh, we actually just moved into a, a new house. And as I was unpacking it, getting a little space to work, um, I was going through some stuff that I had in, in an office area. We're still new and don't have a, uh, a office space like, like they get here. We, I work from my, uh, my home. And so um, I was getting it out and I found a stack of about 30 letters from families here um, when we got ready to go, just, you know, praying for us, um, giving because of your generosity, being able to make us not have to worry about finances as much in the first couple years. And um, yeah, so we're thankful for you guys. We're grateful. Y'all make me happy. You make me want to smile. Um, I love you guys. Uh, it's good to be back. So yeah, that's my pitch. <laughs> I love you guys. Yeah, great. Um, so uh, for what you really came for uh, to uh, hear God's word preached, I hope, right? Um, to learn and be challenged and all those good things. We're, uh, or you guys, I should say, are in a series going through 1 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can flip to 1 Corinthians chapter five. Um, and a couple caveats before we get going. Um, this is not an easy text, okay? Uh, when Billy first asked me to preach and I read it, uh, I was really honestly like, are you kidding? Um, it's, it's really weird. You'll see here in just a second. Um, but one of the things I love about a biblical church, and you may not even know to appreciate about this church, um, is because they preach uh, what Paul told Timothy to do, the whole counsel of God, um, and because they preach through books of the Bible, um, Billy doesn't say, I got a good idea. He says, let's start with scripture and build out. Um, that causes that not, it causes the church not to skip over hard passages, right? Um, it causes things that are not easy to be taught, um, and we need those things, whether we maybe want to admit that or not. And so um, this morning's text is not super easy. Um, I'm, I wasn't super excited about it, but it's in there. We're going to um, talk through it and learn from it, and it's going to be good. Amen? It's God's Word. It's good from the beginning to end, and it's good for all generations, and His Word endures forever. So um, what I'll do is, is I'll read the first two verses, and we'll pray, and we'll unpack it. Sound good to you guys? Yep. Rhetorical question, I guess. If not, I'm sorry. We're going to do it anyway. So here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, this is Paul writing to a church he had planted, and issues have come up, and he's responding. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Let me pause. 
That sexual morality is a word called porneia, where you can imagine we get the word porn, etc. Um, and so it's a it's an all-encompassing thing. It it, it says it, the word doesn't really have any discretion of what kind of sexual morality. It's saying all sexual morality is not okay. And so he says it's among you, meaning among the the church in Corinth. He says in of a kind that is not even tolerated even among pagans. He's saying what's going on is so bad and honestly weird and taboo that it's the culture doesn't even accept it. Not only is it not okay in the church, but the culture doesn't even accept it. You see, you guys thought you needed to watch Netflix to get interesting things. Really, you can read your Bible, <laughs> right? Um, so it says, what, well, what's the issue, Dustin? Here it is, he lays it out in the beginning. For man has his father's wife. What you think that means, it means. His father's wife, his stepmom, the son has taken his stepmom in a sexually immoral way, okay? Um, I won't say much more, okay? The, as Paul addresses this, he's addressing it more from the, the idea of how they're responding, not so much the actual sin, but how they're celebrating the sin and how they're not dealing with the sin. And so uh, we will see here how we should deal with it. But just so you know, uh, in the Roman culture in that time, many commentators say that they believed that this, when it happened, the stepmom, because it was good for the secular world, the dad was probably a, a high up person with a lot of money, and most likely his new wife, the son's stepmom, was probably closer to his son's age than his age, okay? That you can kind of tell what's going on. And so um, then they get together and they don't really do anything about it in the church. They just let it go. And if you know the gospel, we'll get to it in a minute, but God cares about sin so much that he didn't just tolerate it, right? He sent Jesus to the cross to pay for it. And so if that's true, then we have to unpack this for what it means for the church. So verse two, Paul's frustrated. He says, are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? It's a word we often see with death and sadness and grief. Shouldn't you mourn over sin? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He's saying they need to go out, which is a hard thing, right? Because doesn't God accept everybody? And the answer is yes. But once we stamp Christian on our forehead, there's standards that we have, right? So here's an idea. We should never raise barriers for people to come to Christ that Jesus didn't raise, amen? The grace is there and it's there but once we say we're a believer, we shouldn't drop any standards or any barriers that Jesus has put up on purpose, amen? If we've been made righteous, we need to act righteous, and that's kind of what's going on inside the church. So you can tell this is gonna be good, right? Or bad, or however you see, but it's in the, God's word, and it's good, and so we're gonna unpack it. Sound good? Let's pray, and we'll do it. God, we love you. Lord, we're thankful for your grace and mercy. God, thank you for the blood you shed for us. God, thank you for your word. God, we know that the Holy Spirit is the author of your word. We can't be spirit-filled. We can't be godly. We can't prolong our journey in sanctification by being motivated by the Spirit apart from your word. And so, God, I pray that your word would work on us. I pray that it would convict us, encourage us, and God, would it sharpen us? Would it renew our mind? And God, in the end, would it make us more like you? So as we'll read here in a minute, we can be presented as believers, holy and blameless and without blemish. God, wanting to hear the words, good and faithful servant when we're finished. So God, I pray that God, your word would speak to us this morning. God, 
uh, not in a weird way, but in a way that causes us to worship you more and see who you for who you are. And we love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Everybody says, amen. Um, if you haven't lived under a rock the past few years, there's this idea of tolerance, yeah, that is everywhere. And some people would probably even say that love is tolerance, okay? And we know that the Bible teaches that God is love. So is, do those two things always match together is a good question, okay? Um, I will say, though, I think love is much better and deeper than tolerance. I don't think they are exactly the same. Quick example, my kids. Um, because I love my kids, I don't tolerate everything with my kids. Amen? If my kid wants to play in the street, do I tolerate it? Not if you love your child. <laughs> yeah, see? Much different. Um, another example, uh, my, uh, one of our sons is, is getting older and he's starting to wanna play hide and seek. One of the things he wants to do is, um, he wants to actually go hide now, but he doesn't really know how to play hide and seek well. If you have kids, you've probably been through this stage, but one of the things he'll do is we'll tell us to count to 10 and not look where he's gonna be. We'll count to 10, ready or not, here we come, Dax, and we look, and he doesn't hide well. He's like in the wide open, so what do we do to make it fun? Dax, where are you? And he's in plain sight. You know, we're almost teaching him. We're tolerating him being bad at hide and seek, right? It's what we're doing. And so we think it's cute, it's great. But eventually, I told my wife, I'm like, babe, we can't tolerate this forever. Eventually, he's gonna be like 10 or 12 and his friends are gonna start growing underarm hair and, you know, he's gonna uh, have friends that are going through puberty and they're gonna be like, let's play hide and seek. And he's not gonna know how to play because... He's just gonna go hide behind the corner. It's gonna be embarrassing. You know what I mean? Like, how do I do this, you know? And so because we love him, we don't tolerate everything, okay? Um, you can see how this would play out with scripture immediately inside the church. You can see how this would become super important. And what we see is that love is not tolerance. They're not the exact same thing. One theologian, when I was studying this week, said that if tolerance was love, then what would happen is we would fling our arms open in tolerance and what would happen is we would actually end up throwing them so wide that they would reach back around and choke us out from the other side because if everything's tolerated, then really we don't need the word tolerance to begin with, right? There's no separation. And if the church and the world are the same, then the church is obsolete because you can just go out in the world and you don't need the church. There has to be some type of separation, namely that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, right? But because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and made righteous in God's eyes, Paul says we need to act righteous, right? And we need to care about purity. I don't think there's a better place to do this. And if you read that, that last verse, there's not a better illustration of knowing that God doesn't tolerate sin than looking at the cross, right? God, God didn't look at the sinful world, you and I, and say, we're just gonna tolerate it and then I'm gonna let them come in our presence. These people that I'm just gonna tolerate sin and although they're sinful and they have turned themselves away, they've fallen short of the glory of God, I'm, I'm just gonna sweep their sin under the rug because there's just such great people and I'm gonna let them into heaven and let them worship me. That's not the gospel, you guys. Jesus, or God, did not tolerate sin, and we know that because he sent his son Jesus on the cross to pay for it, right? And so now we come to heaven, or we get to worship God and come into relationship with him because he didn't tolerate sin, he paid for our sin, right? There's been a propitiation, there's been something put forward that takes the sin 
from us. And so you say, well, Dustin, I've heard, and this may not all be right, completely right or completely wrong, but I've heard that we shouldn't judge. And so how many of you have ever heard, and I'm gonna read this in a minute, but he who has not sinned should not cast the first stone. Anybody? And so to say somebody needs to go out is a hard thing. But what Paul says, and I'll read this passage in a minute, it almost would seem like, well, Jesus said don't cast stones, but Paul's sending somebody out. How does this go together? And he makes a strong differentiation between believers and unbelievers and people who, when their sin are caught out, they repent and people who brag and are arrogant about their sin. I wanna skip down, I won't do this often, but they'll throw it on the screen. Uh, I wanna skip down and read verse 12 so that y'all don't think I'm just talking about this for no reason, but in the end, Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? You see, Paul's an insider, he's inside the church, and he says, for what should I have to do with judging outsiders? He's saying we should have nothing to do with judging outsiders. Whose job is it at the end to judge the unbelieving world? God's, it's not mine, it's not yours. But he goes on, he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? You see, we are to judge inside the church because if we wanna be like Christ, then we have to evaluate where we are and walk along with brothers and sisters in Christ that help us along the way. Verse 13 says, God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. I'll be honest, it's not something exciting to preach, is it? No, I don't, I don't love it. I, I didn't read this and I'm like, man, I can't wait. I mean, I've wrestled with it, you guys. It's not, it's not easy, but it's God's word and so we need it, amen? And so we'll unpack it. So what I wanna do is, is um, I wanna go quickly to that passage in John chapter eight, where he says this, and I wanna make a quick distinction between a person outside, that how God treats him and a person inside and what happens, and then we'll get into how to unpack this passage. But this is what John chapter eight says, starting in verse four, it says, the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, another porneia, another Greek word, very similar. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, they thought that Jesus was teaching that you can just do whatever you want. We tolerate all sin. But we know that Jesus didn't teach that. Here, we'll see this in just a second. And it's the same thing that Paul says in Romans 6.1 when he says that, can we just keep on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul says, by no means, and it's the, very similar to what Jesus says here. They're not on different pages. They're actually on the same exact page. Verse six, or verse seven, sorry. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. You see, if I should pause here and say, at this point, the woman is an unbeliever and it's not their job to judge her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. People wonder what he was writing, verse nine. But when they heard it, they went one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? You see, what Jesus is saying is, is pretty similar to what happened for all of our salvation experience. 
He's saying at some point in life, we all realize that we stand condemned before God because we realize our sinfulness. We realize what Peter and Isaiah and many people who have encountered God and realize who he is, we say, woe is me, I stand condemned. But then we look at the cross and say, I don't have to stand condemned. I can come to God because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And so he's telling her all of that. He's saying you should be condemned for your sin. But then he condemns her, meaning he tells her that it's wrong. And he goes on to share. And then in verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. He's not condemning her. Why? Because he's going to go pay for her sins. But he says something more interesting and something that we often like to forget in this passage. He says, go and from now on sin no more, right? It's hard for us to look at the cross and not wanna be transformed into the image of Christ, right? We can't have one without the other. And so this passage speaks directly to that. So four things I wanna do. Four things we must do as a biblical church. They all come straight from this passage. We'll unpack it. And so... Four things we must do as a biblical church for, that we learn from this passage especially. The number one is we must care about purity. We must care about purity inside the church. It's not something we can just write off, right? It's not something that, that, that we should just not care about. That Come do what you want. Come do as you please. And you say, well, Dustin, why is that? And there's really two reasons, both of them in Ephesians, that Paul talks about there that we know that. Number one is that because we have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 12 and 13 says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were marked in him with the seal, the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your inheritance on the day of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, Dustin? It means that when you heard the gospel, you received the Holy Spirit. You don't do it later. At the moment of faith, when the, the blood of Jesus was applied to your life and you're seen as righteous, the Spirit comes in you. And First Peter says, the Holy Spirit and God's word is all you need for godliness. It's all you need to be made into the image of Christ. And so if you have the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, you are now on a journey to be made like Christ, which is not an always easy journey. Amen? And so what happens is now is we understand that, and so we're on a journey to be made like Christ, but it's not easy. And so we see that if that's the case, one important thing we need to make that comes from this passage is that when he says, and are you arrogant, what he means in verse two, when he says, and you are arrogant, what he means is that that person who has the Holy Spirit, if they have the Holy Spirit, is not gonna brag and be prideful and glad in their sin. They're gonna mourn over their sin. And if they don't, then they need to be separated for a time to, for God to reveal to them. We'll talk about why he has to do this in a minute, but that, that God would show them, apart from being around other godly people, that it would rattle them a little bit and it would take the scales off their eyes and it would show them that they ought not to be arrogant in their sin and brag about it. Listen, you guys, there's a big difference between seeing your sin and repenting and seeing your sin and staying in it and bragging about it, amen? There's an important distinction we make between those two and this guy's attitude with sin was look at me, it's okay, I can do this. And we see in many places that God cares about purity in the church and we know that the church is not a Facebook page or an idea, the church is you and I, believers in Christ. And so if God cares about purity in the church, he cares about purity in our lives. I wanna read Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Paul makes a connection to this as well, talking about purity. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
hard imperative, hard, and gave himself up for her, Jesus sees the church as worthy of giving his life for and what he calls his bride. He goes on in verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Remember, that's what we're all being done. We have the spirit, we're being sanctified. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How are we cleansed? How are we growing? The word's being preached and we're washing in it, right? That's how we grow. That's why preaching and and understanding and you reading God's word is important so that you can grow. He says in verse 27, what's the end goal? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Beautiful, that means, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Who is that? Not your neighbor, not just me, not just one person, but all of us, that at the end, when we go to glory, all of us in here, that we would be presented without blemish and splendor, beautiful. And how does that happen? Through being washed by the water with the word. God cares about the church being pure, amen? And we have to care about that if God cares about it. There's another thing that we see here about the attitude towards sin that this guy had that they had to get out. It says, ought you not rather to mourn in verse two? What does that mean? In most of the places in the Bible, that language is similar used is around funeral or a death or whatever. And what I can say is, I know this is the case for me and I would imagine for most pastors is nobody gets into ministry to say, I can't wait to talk about church discipline and sexual morality. No, right? This is what it would be similar to. It would be similar to you saying, I don't wanna become friends with somebody because I know that then if I outlive them, their funeral's gonna be harder. That doesn't cause us to separate from people, does it? No. What it does is, is it causes us to care for them more, right? That we would want to present them holy and without blemish. It's the same thing that we see here. And if we realize that God cares about it, that God is saying that, or Paul is saying, God through Paul saying that we should mourn over sin, the church should mourn over sin. We should mourn over it. We don't brag about it, right? We're we're hurt by it, we're grieved by it. It's not something we're happy about. And so we realize that if God cares about purity in the church, we must care about purity. The second thing, and I think this gets to kind of how do we go about this, but the second thing is, is we must begin with the end in mind. When we start this process, we have an end goal, right? I, I don't think at any point that, and we'll see this in a second, that they were excited about putting this person out. That, that's not their heart. And we see this in the rest of the verses. Let's read three through five. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Once again, that word judge. It's inside the church. He's not judging somebody outside. It's somebody who said, I'm a believer. I have the spirit. I wanna pursue Christ. And so Paul's saying, if that's the case, then we have to judge you for not repenting of your sin. Verse four, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that means when they're gathering together as believers at church and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse five, hard words, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's hard, you guys. This isn't fun. But what Paul's doing is he's beginning with the end in mind because verse five doesn't end there. 
He has a goal in why he's doing this. The end of verse five says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what he's saying is, is that we're gonna take him out of the safe place and put him out there for a minute and it's gonna rattle him. And the goal is that he may be rattled and what it may show him is that he may not be a real believer because if he is a believer, he's gonna repent and come back is what First John says. But what it's saying is that if he goes, it will rattle him. And the goal is that maybe a hard conversation or an awkward conversation will cause us to worship in heaven with that person, right? Maybe eternity is worth a hard conversation every now and then, right? Maybe not tolerating something can cause us to actually love people better. But it's not easy, right? It's not something we wanna do unbalanced. It's not something we wanna brag about, but it's something that happens. You see, this was a safe place. The church for them and what Paul had taught them and taught us through his word is that the church was a safe place. It's where we come to grow. I've heard people say that if you have the Holy Spirit and you're a strong believer, you want to be at church, right? There's something you long about corporate worship. There's something you long about being around other believers that are helping you push forward in your end goal in life because your end goal in life is not to retire with more money or to have more followers on Instagram. Your end goal in life is to follow Jesus and to be more like him. And what that does is, is it causes us to be sanctified. So at the end, we will hear what Jesus said, well done, my good and faithful servant. And if that's our end goal, then we start with a different beginning, right? We don't start with the same thing. Think of it like this. Think of a safe place. I know there's a plant down the street. Maybe some of y'all work there. I don't even know if they have these. So if they don't, just go along. It's just an analogy, okay? Um, think of a safe place. If radiation gets out of that place, it's very deadly. And so they have these safe houses where they go and they run to and it gets out. Could you imagine if somebody purposely left the door cracked and only did they leave the door cracked so it could come into the safe place, but they ran around to the other people bragging about it. The thing that was purposely out there that we didn't let in, the person lets it in and they run around bragging about it. That's essentially what's happening with sin, right? Jesus wanted to do away with sin. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he writes this passage to us. He cares deeply about it. And so we must care deeply about it too. We don't want to do that. Listen, if sin gets in here and we brag about it, then it's gonna be no different than the world. And then you're coming not to church, you're just coming to a random thing on Sunday morning, right? We need it to be pure. We need it to be different. And so it becomes important that we know what the church is and that it needs to be different, needs to be pure. So how do we do it? Dustin, what do we do then? How do we go about this? This isn't easy. I 100% agree it's not. And so he kind of goes through it the rest of the way. How do we do this? Because what it's saying is that we, we kind of do need to judge, right? Think about this. Anybody in here make a New Year's resolution? Somebody, okay, a couple hands. More than y'all did. Y'all just already stopped and it's only February. So you, you, you already quit, right? So think about this. Why do you make a resolution? What's the root word there? Resolve. What do you resolve? Problems. How do you find a problem? You, 
evaluate something, and maybe we would use the word judge our own life and say, I need to read my Bible more. So my judgment is my New Year resolution, I'm gonna read my Bible more. Or my judgment is I've gained too much weight, so I'm gonna stop eating so much sugar. Or you know what I mean? You go on, but you evaluate, you judge your life. We do it all the time. We just, for some reason in church, that J word that we don't love because it can be hard and cause us to have to have hard conversations because we don't wanna use that. We don't call it that, but we do it all the time, right? It's why we have New Year's resolutions. And so what that does is, is it causes us, when we do it though, to remember who we are. Because Jesus did say in Matthew 7, 5, which we'll get to here in this next point, is that before you do judge inside the church, you need to make sure that you remove the log out of your own eye before you remove the speck out of your brother's, right? So we don't do this in a, a, heart, a, a way that we're excited about, or we don't do it in a way that we forget our own sin, we do it with the balance of all of that, which is hard. And I think we don't do it but sometimes because the tension is hard. And so number three, what we see here in verses six through eight is that we must remember the gospel at all times. It's funny how when Paul says this, he all of a sudden throws in these, these verses right in the middle of it, and I think it's because he wants us to remember that we were all blinded at once, that we all didn't love Christ at once, and that if it wasn't for God's grace, we wouldn't repent either. So as we do this, he wants us to remember the gospel. Read these verses with me, if you would. Verses, starting in verse six. Your boasting is not good. You see, Paul's issue wasn't so much just the sin in the church. Paul's issue was that the guy was bragging about it and didn't wanna do anything about it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Y'all probably heard this before, right? One bad apple can ruin the whole batch. Yeah, it's the exact same thing. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, just so you know, if you know how bread works, just a little bit of yeast will cause the whole thing to rise. Just, I, I looked this up on Google, so if Google's wrong, take it up with Google, okay? Um, it only takes like half a teaspoon for two cups of flour. So two cups of flour here, it takes a half a teaspoon, just a little bit, and it will permeate all over. And so what he's saying here is not, it, it is he's relating it to the church, that sin shouldn't get in, but what he's saying is that all of our lives are not clean, we all have it sprinkled all through us. Our loaf is leavened, it has lots of sin in it. But my goodness, what a savior, right? That took all of our sin, his blood has been applied to us and now we are seen as a clean loaf with no sin, right? God looks at us just as if we've never sinned. We've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. God doesn't look at us as a sinner anymore that she needs to be damned. He looks at us as a child of God who gets to worship him forever. And so because of that, what he's saying here is that we need to care about it and we need to act like it. Verse eight, let us therefore celebrate the festival. He's talking about eating, not with the old leaven, He's saying, if we're gonna celebrate, let's not celebrate our old sinful life, right? The leaven of malice and evil that we all worked in, every one of us, but with the unleavened bread, the one that has been cleaned, the one that is now pursuing Christ because you have the Holy Spirit in you. 
the one that's being washed by the water of the word, unleavened bread of sincerity and what? Truth. Not just grace, but grace and truth, which is a hard line to walk, you guys. None of us can walk it perfectly, only Christ could, but we can't ignore one side or the other or we get imbalanced. And so we need to do both. The more I studied this, what it got me thinking was, wow. I often think, not that just the Bible's boring, but that all this stuff is new, right? Anybody ever thought, maybe some of you are older than me, Mike, older than my generation, and what do you say? That new generation, they're just, ah. And we all gang up on the teenagers. Man, you believe what these people are doing, right? And here's what we need to know, right? is that sin is not something new. Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun. Sexual immorality is not new. I almost brought a, a historical book, if you're into it, a guy named Bill O'Reilly who's wrote Killing Abraham, uh, the, the, about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. He wrote one called Killing Jesus. And in it, he spells out the type of sexual immorality that was going on in Rome at the time. And it is very similar to what we're dealing with, right? So why is the sin the same? Why, why is the, the, the root of all this the fruit of all the sin the same, and it's the same because we all have the same root of sin, right? Let's, let's think through something. In Genesis 1, God created everything, including Adam and Eve, and he says it was good and perfect, but then in the next chapter, sin enters the world when they eat the fruit, and now from generation to generation to generation to generation, the same sin is passed on through the Father, right? Everybody in here has a biological dad that gave, was part of you becoming alive, and sin was passed down through them. Listen, that's why when Christ was born, his father was not Joseph, it was of the Holy Spirit, so that he could be fully man and fully God, so that although there's the same root issue of sin that entered the world through one man, is what Romans says, there's also a solution through a different man who is Christ. Y'all follow me here? And so it's important that as we see this and as we move forward, we realize that yes, our brother or sister may sin different than us, but we remember that we are sinful as well, right? What does Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 say? For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and it is not by our own works so that we may not what? Boast. We don't go to our brother and say, man, you really suck because you struggle with this. No. We are mourning over their sin, but we don't just not deal with it. That's not an option. Not an option because Paul tells us here, and it's not an option when we look at the cross. Sin's been here, it's been dealt with, and we keep having to deal with it. I wrote here, and I think it's important that we see this, is that obedience is not legalism. Asking somebody to repent and walk in obedience, you guys, is not some religious person coming to you saying they're just legalistic. No. If the Bible explicitly says don't do it, or the Bible explicitly says do it, don't get mad at that person. Get mad at the God of the Bible, right? And then we do what? And that leads us to repenting. And then that, what the Bible says, is actually leads us to refreshing. We don't think of it that way. How do we think of repentance, you guys? The, the end goal with this guy is he goes out and gets rattled. The goal is that he repents and comes back. That's the end goal of what he has started with. 
But what happens in our culture, and Jesus shares an analogy very similar to this, is we see repentance as a sign of weakness, not strength, right? Somebody comes forward during worship or, or, or maybe somebody comes to you and say, I need to repent. Well, what did you do Friday night? You know what I mean? That's how we think. What, what have you done? But what Jesus says is that all of us are still have the old man in us. We still have the old person. We still have sin in us. And sin is what Jesus often talks about as darkness. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in that analogy, what he's saying is, is that really the closer darkness gets to light, the more light shines on it. And guess what happens? The more light shines on our darkness, we go, oh no, there's a dark area. I need to repent. And so really repentance becomes a sign of a more mature believer than the sign of a weak believer. And so then the whole thing is turned upside down because we see this as something that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But remember, it's not a good thing if your end goal in life is not to be like Christ. And so it causes us to say, do I have the spirit? Is my end goal in life to be like Jesus? Is my end goal to be sanctified? Is my end goal, is the spirit in me pushing me forward to want to be like Jesus? And if that is the case, then yes, repentance is a good thing. But repentance is not gonna seem like a good thing if honoring God with your life is not of a priority or an importance. And so he causes us to reflect on our life as we remember the gospel and deal with issues the final thing, number four, and this is good, this is just a good way to end it. I think it's great how Paul does this here. Our verses nine through 13, the ones we hadn't got to. But point four is that we must remember the mission. As we do this, we don't forget the, per, the, the overall purpose of what we're doing. You say, well, how, how, this is hard. This is a lot of tension, and it is. I, it's not all super duper black and white, but we know that judging inside the church is not bad. Right? It can be a good thing. It can call us to repentance and call us to refreshing and get us towards our end goal of becoming like Christ. But it call, Paul quickly calls us back to the big picture mission. Let's read these verses and we'll be finished. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world can anybody go out of the world? No, that's Paul's point, right? He's saying you can't not be around these people. You can't take yourself out of the world, but in here, we have to be careful with what we're associating with. We do, we have to be careful. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That's an important caveat, you guys. If you're an underliner, when Paul says, bears the name of brother, he means somebody that has openly, publicly said, I am a follower of Christ. I have put faith in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying as a brother. It could be for a guy or a girl, but he means somebody who's a brother or sister in Christ. And if they've done that and they're not wanting to repent of their sin, there's really only a couple options. Either they really haven't repented or either they just need to be taught what needs to happen when those things get revealed to them. And then it becomes something you rejoice with them over because then their life becomes more like Christ and it honors God and then they will hear good and faithful servant. 
It says, bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You see, Paul says we should not judge the outside world. We go after them. But brothers and sisters, we're called to be pure in here. We're called to be after Christ and want to live a righteous life. And if sin gets in and we brag about it, we have to take it serious because God takes it serious. And Paul tells us to take it serious. He goes on with the rest of the verses we already read. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside, purge the evil person from among you. I wanna share just two quick things before we're done, okay? Number one, you have to really ask yourself what it does for us that is not in this exact situation because this is a, a pretty specific one, but it causes us to ask, do we really wanna be like Christ? Let me share a quick example for this, okay? Um, I was once in a small group and um, we got in there and it was like uh, something happened and the guy wanted to kind of, you know, bow up and fight at the other guy at work or something. And, and they were kind of bragging about it. And it just didn't sit well with me. I was like, you know, we come here, we gather so that I can be challenged. I mean, if your end goal is to be like Christ, don't you wanna go be around somebody that challenges you to be a better husband, men, or a better wife, women, or a better son, or, or, or whatever, a better worker, a better godly person in the world? That's what we should want and crave if we have the spirit. But if we don't, we're not going to. It's gonna seem foreign and weird, but we have to desire that. And to be completely honest, we're not gonna be effective at the mission if the church looks just like the world, right? If they do that in the world and then we do it in the church, why come to church? There's gotta be something different in here. Right? There, there's something different, men, when we talk well about our wives. There's something better, women, when we don't gossip when the other people are gossiping. There's something different when, when we're willing to be a little bit of an outsider because we're inside the church and we're following Christ. And that's what makes the church attractive. If the church is not pure, it won't be effective, right? And so we all, remember, this is not for your neighbor. This is for me and you we have to be after it. We have to want purity. And so it brings us face to face with, do we really want that in our life? Two quick applications and I'll pray and we'll be out of here. For unbelievers, if you're here and you're like, well, I don't really have a desire to be like Christ. It could be that you're an unbeliever and maybe you think you're a believer because in our culture, that can be very mixed up. Right, Your brain get Christian trained and your heart never change because you haven't really put faith in Christ and therefore the Holy Spirit's not in you. So you're not gonna have any desire to be like Christ. And so for you, Jesus stood in your place and took the wrath that you deserve and you can come to him now with the free gift of salvation and be saved today. Doesn't have to be a weird moment. And then for the rest of us, the challenge is that we can be reminded of God's holiness and purity, right? God's holy. What did the seraphim say when, or what did Isaiah say when the seraphim came and what were the seraphim singing in Isaiah six? Holy, 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 the Lord God almighty. Listen, the church 
and the people of God need to be holy and pure too. We need to be after that. It needs to be something we take serious. And so we in here can use this as a time where we just reflect in a healthy way, not a bad way, but in a good way so that we can be more like Christ, amen? Listen, I hope that this wasn't like, man, hard, okay? Uh, But my prayer is that we would have a healthy balance of how to deal with this, right? That we would care, that maybe it would just, God would reveal something to you that you would want to be more like Christ. We would take it serious so that we can grow and we can be pure and we can be effective as God's church, amen? Let's pray quickly and then y'all can stand and we'll sing. God, we love you. God, we're thankful for your grace and mercy. God, we're thankful for your spirit and your word. God, we're thankful that, God, you continue to work on us. God, that Philippians 1 says that, God, what you start, you will bring to completion. God, you'll continue to work on us. So God, would you do that? Would you use your word to wash us? Would you give us desires to get in it? Would you give us desires to repent? Would you, in the end, God, make us more like you so that we can be presented to you the day of the Lord without blemish and holy? God, we love you and we thank you for these things. And it's in Christ we pray, amen. You guys can sing.